Hi, everybody. Welcome back to episode six mm-hmm. of Lame and Learn Torah. It is Tuesday, October 10th. It has been a very trying week for Israel, for Jews all over the world. Everywhere. In solidarity. It has been very, very difficult to go about our daily routines. Um, you know, often kind of getting lost in the middle of the supermarket, forgetting what you were supposed to get, or, you know, in the middle of work and then forgetting what you were doing. Um, but I think continuing this mission of studying Torah is something that Celia and I are both committed to. Uh, we are thinking of everyone. It's on my mind all the time. It's on my lips all the time. And I I feel bad doing anything like fun or, yeah. or joyful because um, the tragedy of this past weekend has, has, has been in my brain. Um, so we want to dedicate this episode to um, everybody there, everybody who's fighting on our behalf, um, yeah, specifically these IDF soldiers, I have heard more than a couple times that they're always so moved by our shows of support, which is like so mind blowing to me because it's like, how do you not realize how much we love you? You're our heroes. Yeah. We, like, we are completely in awe. We support you 1000%. And if that message was not made clear then on behalf of like civilization i apologize you are (laughs) we love you we are are knights in shining armor um so thank you for fighting for our freedom like celia said we dedicate today's episode to the idea that torah study could be light in the midst of darkness and it can lift you up it can make you feel better. It can make you feel more connected. It can remind you why we're all here. Oh, God. I thought I wasn't going to cry. Aww. It can remind you, like, why we're here, why we're trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, and one of my masochistic moments of reading New York Times comments... Um, I'm in there, by the way. You can find <laughs> me in the comment section just battling it out. Me too. And there was one, um, there was, at, at some point I got so angry that I put my own comment in and I actually had to Google something to fact check, like, how old is the Jewish community in Aleppo? Imagine my shock when I read, like, historically, um... It documented the Jewish community in Aleppo was around since 1000 BCE. We have been there forever. Like, this is our tradition. This is our... How can anybody tell us that we have no ties to the land of Israel or, or or to the surrounding lands... And, and I'm reminded of it every time I read. Even the parasha that we're going to cover today, Chaye Oh my Sarah. God, that's such a great one for today. Yeah. Uh, Abraham is so emphatic about getting a wife from his family, but never ever taking his son back to the land where he's from. 
or even, well, I guess we're just going to kick it off. We are opening with... Let's do it. Perek Haftalid, which is 24. And in the opening, like Celia said, Abraham is very old, and he is uh, making a, a, a pact or a you know, some kind of author agreement with his servant, who is unnamed at this point. And he tells him to place your hand under my thigh, which is like a symbol of making an oath. It's like a gesture that you do when you're making an oath. And he says, I need you to swear to me that you're going to find a wife for my son Yitzchak, but, and I'm even going to go further than what Celia said. Celia mentioned that, but please don't ever take my son Yitzchak back to where I'm from. I want him to stay here. We need a living presence in the land. But not only that, he says, I don't even want you to find him a wife from here. I need you to go back to that place. And I stopped and looked at some commentaries. Um, I found something very interesting from a 16th century commentary named Chizkuni. And what he wrote was, it was like Celia said, Abraham was very emphatic about finding a wife outside of Canaan because he was aware of what would happen to his claim to the land were his son to marry into people that were already living in the land. Wow. And how it would water down his claim, his claim yeah. through divine right. Wow. Rather than, you know, having his son quote-unquote marry into uh this right to the land and this is something that came up last week as well about abraham's foresight to make sure that everything that he did was historically documented Mm -hmm. there was a paper trail uh there was always some sort of outside uh context or outside view of what he was doing so that it didn't only depend on his religion or his experience with Hashem, it was an objective, like, you can't deny that Abraham is a part of this. And yeah, which is why many people during the current, um, you know, dispute over land, many people will say like, well, you know, we don't believe in your Torah. So we don't believe in your claim to the land. And then it's really important when people start making those arguments to be able to point to modern documents, like the Balfour Declaration, to, to like point well, even towards... to archaeological finds that right. show the presence of Jews in ancient Israel. It's been in our history for such a long time and in world history for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, because it documents every single time we got kicked out of it um, and forced out of it and killed out of it. So, yes, it is in there. It is written down. Um, and this is, you know, the, one of the first examples that we have of our ties to the land, of the promises that God made to us in Bereshit and God made to Abraham so that it be passed down specifically to Yitzchak this child Yitzchak and the people that come from Yitzchak. Mm-hmm. And this is an important distinction to make because Abraham also fathered Ishmael, whom we know fathered many nations that are, you know, also in the area surrounding Israel, but the claims to the land don't hold um, like Yitzchak does because the promise was only passed down to him, to Yitzchak. And I think towards the end of the parasha, when Abraham... Uh remarries and has a bunch of sons uh with this with this new woman Keturah it still says 
there, Vayiten Avram et kol ashed lo mm-hmm. And this is the pasuk immediately after listing all of these sons that Abraham had with his, um, it says wife, but it also says concubine, uh-huh. um, whatever it is, but it makes very clear, like, none of these sons get in the way of Yitzhak's inheritance. It's clear that Yitzhak is the sole heir of Abraham's legacy. Um, I think also I want to bring up, uh, we got some amazing feedback in our last episode from our dear Beit Midrash friend, uh, Stephanie. Co-founder, manager for some time, now on to get her PhD in Talmud, so women are powerful in Torah. Yeah, and we had the privilege of getting a few voice notes from her about uh, our last episode. And one thing that she mentioned, I think we spoke last time about like why Yitzhak... He was such a passive character. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't really do much for himself. And um, Stephanie mentioned in one of her voice notes that Yitzhak was kind of never meant to be a huge character on his own. That sometimes you just need the link that passes it on. So Abraham was the father of the generation. He was the starter of the religion. Yaakov, you know, he had the 12 tribes and, and the uh, Judaism mainly expanded through him and, and the whole story kind of starts with him and, and Egypt, etc. And sometimes the link is just necessary. He doesn't have to play a huge role and Yitzhak had to be there, mm-hmm. but he didn't have to be a star. So um, thank you, Stephanie, for helping us understand Yitzhak's role in the Torah a little bit better. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. So basically, Abraham takes these uh, ten camels and all of his gold and everything, and he gives them to Eliezer, and he says, go to the place of my birth, which we know is Ur Kastim, um, outside the land of Canaan, and you are going to find a woman to marry my son. So now Eliezer... When does he get named Eliezer? Because we don't know him as Eliezer yet. Is he never named the whole time? Not in the chapters no. we're doing. No, are you serious? This is crazy. How do we know that it's Eliezer? So the crazy thing is, Eliezer is never actually named in Chaye Sarah. Something that I did not notice until tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I'm using a new translation tonight. I guess I'm just rotating through the ones in my household. Uh, the stone edition of the Chumash, which referred us back to Perek Tetvav Pasuk Bet, 15, verse 2. Um, the only person that I have to oh, yes. inherit my household is my the steward of my house he's called um from from damascus eliezer okay um i'm but i wonder why the torah goes out of its way to not name eliezer in this chapter he he plays such a crucial role yeah in finding rifka he's kind of abraham's representative here and so I think that it keeps calling him the servant, mm-hmm. and I think it's to emphasize his servile position. 
because within the story of Eliezer finding Rivka, there is this notion that Eliezer keeps having to ask permission for things. Okay. Which is how I'm making sense of it. Um, because as I was reading it, and I'm like, why is he asking so much? And then I realized Rivka is a descendant, or let's relax, she's a child of <laughs> Abraham's brother. Right. He, so he must be... I think a grandchild. A grandchild? Yeah. I made a whole family tree for myself. It is possible that Eliezer sees Rivka's family as the same family of Abraham. Oh, so he's kind of there. He's kind of at obligated yeah, to, as well. To show them respect as well. Um I think also um it kind of occurred to me while I was saying that he represents Abraham. I think it's never Eliezer making a decision for himself or on behalf of, you know, for his own um, reasons. He's always doing it for the good of Abraham. He's always asking the God of Abraham. It's somebody else showing him oh, that oh. this is the mm-hmm. right decision to make. So I think omitting his name is also kind of omitting his... Agency. Yes, yes. It's omitting his agency from this decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe he doesn't feel qualified or equipped or or i don't know it's not his place right maybe he's just a humble servant and he knows what his job is and he knows what his job is not and but he, he is incredibly trustworthy it. because yes, with he, all this gold and yeah ammo. he's going there and abraham tells him if the woman does not want to come back with you then you will be released from this oath to me he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from then from there so I think Abraham kind of anticipates <clears throat> divine intervention here. Like mm-hmm. he he tells Eliezer, don't worry, you're not going to have to do anything on your own. Hashem is going to send an angel or a representative or some sign and you'll know exactly which girl um, to bring home with you. Mm-hmm. And so the thigh promise happens and uh, Eliezer or the servant takes this these 10 camels he takes all of this jewelry and he goes to the city of Nahor now it said and set out to Aram Naharaim to the city of Nahor like where Nahor lives okay okay got it and then he comes towards a well of water uh, at evening time so all of the maidens the fair maidens are coming out to draw water from the well and then Eliezer comes up with this cool idea. He's like, you know what? Maybe I don't need an actual angel. I'm going to ask for a sign. And he says, when I ask any maiden, may I have a drink? If she replies to me that you may have a drink and I will give your camels as well, that's how I know that that's the girl for Yitzchak. I love this because it shows that, well, first of all, what he's vetting for is kindness, mm-hmm. but also, which, you know, Abraham is one of the one of the core values, but it's also kindness to a stranger. Eliezer is going to Orkastim. 
He's going to Aram Naharaim, and maybe he doesn't know anyone. Maybe he's unfamiliar. He's been out of the town for like a really long time. Um, and he says, who is going to have enough kindness to match my master? Eliezer knows how good and kind and just his master is. And so he almost creates the parameters to find someone worthy enough for him. Yeah. And I think this is important because as much as we said before that Eliezer has no agency in this situation and that he's always thinking about what would Abraham do and what would Abraham think, in the end, he is the one who comes up with this test. So you're right. He really knows the household that he's trying to get a wife for. He knows the mother, the mother of Yitzchak, Sarah. He knows what she was and what midot were important to her and what he should be looking for in a wife for his master's mm-hmm. son. Um, to the extent where he doesn't <clears throat> even know if he's successful. So in Kaf Aleph, it says... Um, you know, the man stood, the man being the servant, he stood gazing at her, Rivka, when she says, I'll, I'll give your camels, and she's, she's like huffing and puffing, and she's emptying the jars and filling them back up. Remember, he has like 10 camels. Um, and he stood gazing at her silently, wondering whether the Lord had made his journey successful. He's like the first one that came along. I can't believe it. Is this Not only that, real? but like if an angel of God came and said, <clears throat> that's her, then he would know. But he created this like very specific... Um, you know, guideline that he would need to follow, and then it happened, and then he's like, "Wait, did I just do this? Like, is that <laughs> that's funny? Yeah, you know what I mean? Because it's I created not, the situation. It's, it wasn't an I angel. Manifested. It's just like whatever he said came <laughs> true. Wow! And he immediately, without hesitation, he pulls out the the jewelry, the golden nose ring, and the bracelets, and he says, "Whose daughter are you? C- can we go spend the night?" Um, and probably to his delight, she answers, I am the daughter of Bituel, the son of Milcah, who she bore to Nahor. This was interesting to me, even in my first reading, that she would call Bituel the son of Milcah. I feel like it's unusual. To, to say what the mother's name was? Yeah, first. I don't know why she goes out of her way to say it was Milkaf. Uh, traditionally, um, maybe because they're saying that she gave birth to someone on behalf of Nahor. So the so it, it's interesting enough if you skip over it. Okay. But later, when Eliezer is retelling the story to Rifka's family, he said, and this is in uh, Pasuk Mem Zayin 47, he switches the order around. Mm. Um, and again, I'm I, for me, the significance there is a little bit clearer of like, he's standing in front of her father and her brother and he's like, like I better make good with oh, these guys maybe. and make sure that I get the dad's name first. Um, but I have a massive question and I don't have an answer to it and I don't know what to do with it. Okay. And I think it might require like a lot more study more than this podcast has time for, (laughs) but, um, 
in Pasuk 8. Okay. It is going back to Abraham telling Eliezer uh, what he's doing. And he says, but if the woman does not want to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath to me. Just don't make my son go back there. Don't take my son back there. And if you skip forward into 41, he is recounting the story to Rivka's family. And he said, I asked my master, what if the woman does not want to come back with me? And he answered, you are released from this vow only if you come to my family and they refuse to give her to you. Then you are released from my vow. He changes the story. That is interesting. Because originally, uh, Abraham tells Eliezer, if you go to her and she doesn't want to come, then the oath is over. You're, you're released from the oath. And here, Eliezer is telling the household of Rivka, I was told that if I come to you guys, if I come to the family of Abraham and you guys refuse to give her to me, then I'm released from my vow. So honestly, I, I think that the answer to both questions is kind of the same. Which is he what? knows who he's talking to. Rifka goes home with all this jewelry on, right? Mm -hmm. It says in the chat in the Pasuk, Lavan sees all of the jewelry oh, yes. on his sister's arms and he runs out to greet the guest. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's major shade on the Torah's part of saying like Lavan Oh, he right he reads as super slimy. Yes, and that's confirmed later on when yeah. Yaakov <clears throat> Yitzchak's son goes to find his wives with uh, Laban's family. But anyway, um, and I think Rifka knows uh, what kind of people her father and her brother are. That's why she goes out of her way to say, like, I am the daughter of Milka, mm. and then this is who, uh, who, you know, this is who my dad is and who his father is. And I, and I feel like it has a similar answer. Eliezer knows who he's talking to. Okay. He, it, it seems like he knows that Lavan is not a very genuine person. He knows Lavan uh, is a little bit greedy. Um, and it also sounds like he knows Lavan is in charge here. It's not so much Bituel. No, Bituel stays almost silent. Right. Um, Lavan's I, been talking the whole time. And I think if Eliezer had worded it like that to them, like saying, if she doesn't want to come, right, then I am absolved, right? And I feel like Lavan automatically would have gone up on defense, like, she's our daughter, what do you mean? It's not up to her only. Right. But I think he might have worded it that way. It's kind of like the trick of getting your spouse to do what you want them to do right. by making them think it was their idea. Because oh. immediately after yeah. saying that, Lavan's like, oh, you know what, let's ask her. And they yeah. do, and Rifka, without hesitation, I'm, I'm going with him. Okay. So I think that they have similar answers. Eliezer knows who he's talking to and kind of changes things around in his retelling mm -hmm. to reflect that he's on to Lavan. Okay. Um, I like that. Thanks. Okay. Vatomer elav gam teven gam mispo rakimanu gam makom lalun. And she tells him we have 
everything that you need to to stay in this town come sleep by my place so he immediately before even following Rivka he immediately bows and thanks Hashem um, he acknowledges right away that Hashem answered him at, unequivocally He's like, yeah. there, there is no doubt in my mind that this girl was sent to me by you at the exact moment that my prayer was answered, and thank you. So Rifka runs home. She tells everybody what happens. And Lavan, upon seeing the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's hands, I imagine his eyes, like, popping out. Mm-hmm. And then he runs out to greet the guest. And he says, bring, come inside, stay, they stay, and then they wake up in the morning and he requests to be sent away back to his master. Um, and Rivka's brother Lavan and her mother Milka are telling her, um, no, what are, are telling, excuse me, are telling Eliezer, no, let her stay. Um, why don't we stay with us for a year, 10 months? Um, but he actually feels like, no, we need to go now. And they're like, fine, why don't we call her and we'll ask her what she thinks. So it's almost like, I like this because it's connecting back to what you said, where in a roundabout way, eventually she gets her agency and they say, well, do you want to go with him? Which is probably not a question that she ever thought her family would ask her. Yeah, that that she would get to answer, yes. That it was her choice. And now she's like... I, I do. I want to go. And so they sent her away. And they get, actually give her a blessing. And they say, our sister, may you grow into the thousands of myriads and may your descendants possess their enemy's gates so it could be, be successful. And so she leaves. And then we have this really romantic um, yes. moment where it's called, I don't know if you're into this uh, rom-com culture, but it's called a meet-cute Oh yeah, you know the, <laughs> this is like I think the first meet cute um, oh, in that. all of Torah, if not <laughs> on all of the written word. I hope. Um, if for those of you that don't know, a meet cute is lingo for when you're like watching a movie or reading a book, and the two characters who will eventually probably fall in love with each other meet in some happenstance way where they first see each other and they are. Yeah, they're very the smitten with each other yeah. immediately. Probably something interesting or funny happens. So here we have a meet cute um, where Yitzhak is coming back from the direction of Be'er Lahai Ro'i. And I will revisit this in some theory that I have um, in the next few minutes. But for now, he was just coming from the direction for he was then living in the Negev. He goes out to the field to meditate. Which, I mean, he sounds like this guy is very chill. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He sounds like, I mean, I guess if you're living in, you know, in the middle of nowhere and you go towards a field and you're meditating, you, I would imagine, also want to be alone, which feeds into kind of what I want to say um, in a minute. But um, he looks up, he sees that there's camels approaching, it's evening, He's out in the middle of nowhere. These camels are riding up and she, he looks up and he sees people. And Rivka, it says, she also looks up and she sees Yitzchak. She jumps down from the camel and she asks Eliezer, 
who's that man walking towards us? And he, the servant replies, that's my master. And she immediately understands that this is the man that she is brought to marry. And she takes her veil and she covers herself. And Eliezer tells Yitzchak everything that had transpired and what he was sent to do and who he found. And Yitzchak brings her into the tent of his mother, Sada. I found this to be so beautiful. So incredibly beautiful that he was living in his mother's tent. Um, maybe not willing to part with a piece the fact of that her. it calls her it, it calls it her tent it's yeah. not Abraham's it's and and it's kind this, this is also like his blessing of bringing Rivka into the space that was his mother's mm-hmm. and she's so known for her hospitality for cooking for all of these guests for, you know, keeping Kedusha in the home. And so he brings her into his mother's tent. And this has been the place of refuge for him since Akedah Yitzchak, which is the last time we saw her, since his mother's passing, Heartbreak. which is the last time that we really heard anything about her. And now we find out that Yitzchak is living, I, th- I would imagine, in the middle of nowhere, in the Negev, in his mother's tent, in complete and utter mourning. And he's going out into the field and meditating at night. He's probably, I don't know, soul searching or bawling his eyes out every night um, after what happened to him, after what happened to his mother. And now he comes back and he sees this almost in the form of like the salvation where Eliezer brings this woman and we find out that she's incredibly beautiful also. And he realizes who she will be for him and he realizes that he can now move forward in his life. So he took, it says he takes Rivka as his wife, and he loved her. I don't remember seeing this. I know. In other places. Vayeha Veha, he, he, he loved her. He loved her. I, Our texts it, say the, the same thing. Torah goes out of the way to talk about how, how much he welcomed her into his life. Uh, again, says, also because I was comforted yeah, after his mother's death. Oh, oh my god, I don't even notice the end of that. Oh yeah. my gosh. And Yitzchak was comforted after his mother's death. It revisits this idea Ooh. that he was not comfortable. And now, with Rivka, he's now comfortable. He's brought this woman into into his mother's tent, and he feels the, the sense of... The void is filled. Yeah, that's oh a good way gosh. of putting it. It's really beautiful. It is. Okay, so then this takes me immediately to this kind of idea that I was forming and I almost went kind of crazy trying to figure out what what this was because it goes after this um you know adorable little meat cute um (laughs) um we begin uh uh pedic 25 where uh, we meet we find out that Abraham has taken another wife named Ketura Mm -hmm. and he has like a bunch of children but he's keeping them away he actually sends them into other lands which you could kind of like identify them as like Assyria or like other Middle Eastern countries, but sends them away from where Yitzhak is going to be. Yeah, he he gives them presents. He and he says, mm-hmm. He sent them away. It, it it keeps this separation between Yitzhak and the rest of his children. Yeah, and Abraham dies. He lives to a ripe old age. He's buried next to Sarah, his wife, um, in in uh, uh, Marat HaMachpelah. 
um, on the it says again on the land of Ephron, son of Sohar the Hiti, who Abraham, Abraham bought. bought. Yes. Um, so it's definitely repetitive. And then it says after Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac, his son, who was then living near Be'er, Be'er Lahai Roi. So I'm reading this and I'm like, I've heard that name before. And then I'm like, wait, I just read it the page before because it says he was living there. He was living yes, in the he Negev. he came from there. Right, but right as he's meeting Rifka, it says he's because he's returning from, from Be'er Lahai yeah. Roi. And I'm like, no, this is this feels a little older. This feels like a couple of weeks ago. Am I going to get chills I, right now? Night? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. But... Um, I don't know, your revelations as of late have been (laughs) really great. Oh, God, I'm never going to lift up to this one. Okay, so turn with me, if you will, to Tetzain, which is 16 in Bereshit. Oh, going going back. We're going back. Okay. Um, We're in Tetzain, and Sarai has, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Sarai has this bright idea to tell Abraham to take a concubine. And so he takes Hagar. Yes. And she gets pregnant immediately. And she is livid. Uh, Sarai is so upset, she sends her away. And she is pregnant, running away. And she appears, she, or not she appears, she goes to a well. And at this well, she is crying and an angel of Hashem appears to her. So this is not so significant because it's not named until Yudalid, which is 14, it says, the angel is saying, return back. You will have a son. You will have a nation. Like, go back. It's, I'm, you know, sorry that she sent you away, but you got to go back. You are, now she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, have I not here seen him who sees me? That is why the well is called Be'er Lechai Roi. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This na- this well was named Well of the Living One Who Sees Me. So now we have this well where Hagar is crying, sent away by Sarai, Yitzhak's mother. And wow. the angel comes to, to Hagar, mother of Ishmael, and says... You are going to have a great nation. I don't have an answer for this. I just, I noticed this, and I'm wondering if you can help me work through it. Why, after Sarah's death, would Yitzhak take his mother's tent, pitch his tent in mourning near Be'er Lechai Ro'i with all of this context that he has? How is that a part of his mourning process? I was going to say the simplest answer is, like, it was right near where... Near there, and it was a well, and right. it needed water. But I don't think that anything is coincidence in the Torah. No. And that the very fact that the Torah goes out of its way to say the name of the well twice yeah. in this um, In this chapter, parasha, but yeah, also in... telling us the name of the well... And that Yitzchak was coming from there. We didn't have to know where he was coming from. And that he takes his new bride and settles. there. I don't know. I, th- I could say a lot of things that might not be the case, and I would be just conjecturing, so I don't even want to do it. 
I just find it fascinating. I mean, maybe some of our listeners have a clue, but I found it incredibly connected. Also that one could read the Torah and say, hey, wait a minute, this is important. Let me investigate. Like I, I felt like I was an investigator. I felt like I was back in the college library trying to work out some thesis yeah. um, and do close reading, but it, it felt incredibly rewarding to even figure this out. What it means, I don't know. No, I love I love your close readings. And oh, your, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a big picture person, so I tend to I, miss a lot of these no. little details. But I think we complement each other. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, but I think that your emphasis before on why the well was named Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Um, I think that also kind of speaks to why Yitzchak might have wanted to hang around somewhere like that. I oh. don't think he felt... Seen? Seen. Mm. Yeah. I think he felt kind of like the way we see him as like the link. The, right. the guy in between Yaakov and, and Abraham. Um, or looking to be seen like what is my purpose? What, what's my identity? How do I move forward? How do I fit in... Like, my brother Yishmael has these 13 sons on one side, and and my father has all of these sons with this concubine, and I'm just this lone guy. My mom's not around anymore. Who am I in mm. the course of things? It could be just a place where people, or not people, but you know when people experience hardships that they go to places that are meaningful for them and then there they look for inspiration and it's possible that Yitzhak was looking for inspiration and if Hagar went there weeping as she was sent away from Sarai and she was answered by an angel of God maybe Yitzhak was like hey maybe God will speak to me maybe I can find some clarity there at this well where people can see you so maybe it becomes this like lore. Uh, yes, a legend. This legendary uh, yeah, well, well mm. where your prayers are answered. I wonder if it crops up later. Maybe not. In the commentary in my um, book, it says this was the propitious site where Hagar's, Hagar's prayers had once been answered, and it was there that Isaac had gone to pray. Even before he prayed. So in here it claims that his prayer was for a bride, but... I think it's I think it's deeper than that. I really feel like what you were saying is true. There was a void. Um there was something missing. He you know, he was meditating. He was lost. Yeah. He was he was trying to figure out who he is and I think this well held answers for him. Yeah. So I just whipped out my um Rav Hirsch translation very graciously given to me by my brother on a birthday because um, he knows how much I love Rob Hirsch. What he writes about is the appearance of the word, the words in Pasuk Samech Bet, 62, Ba Mi Bo. Okay? It says, Ve'yitzchak ba mi bo be'er l'chai ro'i ve'hu yoshev be'eretz ha'negev. And he says, this expression of ba mi bo come from having come mm. Ha never appears any other time in the Torah. The way that Rav Hirsch translates it is, 
Yitzhak went to a place to which he was drawn, and then he went to some other place to which he was now drawn. What does that mean? He went to Be'er L'chai Ro'i originally as somewhere to look for answers. Mm. He he knew that this is somewhere where even someone like Hagar found answers. I love the language here. Even when and where everything on earth seems dead to us, a living one still sees us. God's providence and guidance as regards Yitzchak's elder brother were revealed to the maidservant of Abraham's house. So Yitzchak is like, if even Hagar can have this amazing epiphany here and get these answers that she wants, maybe I can get it too. Mm-hmm. And then, so again here it, it says that his answers come in the form of Eliezer coming with Rivka and um, it's a little deeper here, like he's kind of asking, where am I going in my life? And the answer is Rivka. Yeah. Uh, the end, the last paragraph in here is interesting though, because it says it appears that Yitzchak was already living on his own in the Negev. Unlike Avraham, who for several years had been living among other nations, Yitzchak chose to live in isolation. Oh, that's a very interesting, um, rebellion i want to say Um, very interesting i would call it trauma i don't know that he even disagreed so much with what happened to him i think he just had a hard time digesting it coupled with losing his mother his mother um it sounds like a lot for anyone to bear i know and he needed to meditate and you wish wish we got more oh on feelings i'm so (laughs) I'm just such a character-driven person, and I and I just want to know more about Yitzhak. I, that's I how feel people like connect, it's I missing. Think. I, I mean, I think I'm we get a lot just from these short few yeah. pesukim. He's living on his own. He's living in the tent of his mother who passed away. Mm-hmm. He keeps that tent. He lives in that tent. He needs to feel her, smell her, be in her embrace, even though she's not there. He's living in solitude, and he's going out and meditating. I think that he is a very deep and thoughtful person who it's not so easy to really say anymore that he is just such a passive character. Um, I think that he is very thoughtful with his emotions and what he needs and taking care of himself, and finding, trying to figure out what his way is, what his way forward is. He has the weight of a whole nation on his shoulders. He is the sole heir to Abraham, who's been promised a great nation. So this same baggage that was placed on Sarah and Abraham is now on Yitzhak, but he doesn't have a wife. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he doesn't even know, like, who is this person even going to be that I'm going to, you know, so he's be even behind his father in that respect. Um, and then he sees Rifka, he sees his path forward, and we have emotion and we have love. And I sometimes wonder what would have been if he was surrounded by family, um, because the, the... The next parasha begins the story of Yaakov and Esav and Yitzchak being literally blind in that story. And it's a story that has to be told in isolation. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. Is it a commentary on Yitzhak's choice to be isolated? Like, does the Torah care one way or another whether, you know, Abraham chose to surround himself with people? He created um, nefashot. He created so Like, you know, he, he brought souls in under his his tent. He he was all about hachnasat orchim. He was yeah. all about uh, bringing people under his influence and... Yitzhak almost wants nothing to do with that. Mm. Or doesn't know how he can even at this point. He doesn't really want contact with the outside world, but he is pretty much forced into it. Um, in Perek Chavav, we'll get there next week um, as we open Toledot. Uh, we have some interesting conversations and uh, between Yitzhak and Avimelech. He, <laughs> Avimelech resurfaces. Pum, pum, pum. Um, and we can see those conversations unfolding next week. Um, so here's to more Torah learning. Thank you for spending some time with us on this episode six of Lame and Learn Torah. We were happy that you were able to spend some time with us. And hopefully this Torah learning has shed some light onto your very dark week. And we hope and we pray for better days ahead. Amen. Amen. And we thank all of the soldiers who are fighting on our behalf and this is for you yeah thank you thank you good night <laughs>